Hello and welcome to part two of Into Some of the Women of the Special Operations Executive or SOE. I'm Gemma and I'm Emily. Last time Gemma took us through the origins of the SOE and through the stories of Margaret Knight, Cecily Ledford and Elizabeth Devereux Rochester and this time I'm going to look at three more women as well as the end of SOE. So who is first on your list? I've tried to go chronologically, even though these women's stories do overlap, just because it makes more sense in my brain as we head towards the end of the SOE. So first up, I want to take a look at Virginia Hall, who was nicknamed the Limping Lady by the French and the Canadian Bitch by the Germans. Side note, she's definitely not Canadian, so I suppose that makes it doubly offensive. Virginia was born in Baltimore in the USA on the 5th of April 1906 and she was the youngest daughter in a well-to-do family with English-Dutch origins. In her younger years she was found to be a talented linguist and graduated from the best schools and colleges in both North America and Europe and she set out to work in the US foreign embassies. But in 1931 things seemed to be to begin to go downhill for her. I mean 1931 saw the death of her father and despite working in the American embassy in Poland and then the consulate in Turkey, her attempts to join her country's foreign service was constantly frustrated by ill luck in, in, and inflexible rules. Additionally, a game shooting accident in Turkey in December of 1933 meant that the lower half of her left leg had to be amputated, but Virginia was never to be deterred. By the end of 1934, she was recovered and once again in Europe as a clerk in the US consulate in Italy. But in May 1935, on hearing that she was to start a further posting in Estonia, she resigned her position and was caught in Paris when war broke out. Wanting to help where she could, she joined the French ambulance services, but soon found out that hopping in and out of the vehicles with Cuthbert, her prosthetic leg, didn't suit her. I mean, you have to remember that prosthetics just weren't as good then as they are now. And on the 22nd of June 1940, France signed an armistice with Germany and Virginia was said to have been disgusted by this, so much so that she made her way to Britain via Spain, ending up in London and the US Embassy there. Here she put herself forward to work for SOE and her nationality, as the US hadn't yet joined the war, meant that she would be allowed reasonably free movement in France. So even with her disability, she was accepted. During her training, she was described as having a quick and adaptable mind, a talent for making friends, fearsome drive and an unquenchable spirit, all things that would serve her well as a secret agent. And so in May 1941, at the same time permission was granted for her to become a card carrying foreign correspondent of the New York Post, she began a crash course with the SOE with extra coaching from Buckmaster himself. And just three months later, on August the 23rd, she left Britain for France. The city of Lyon became the central base for her heckler network, and she operated her own safe house. She had a few different cover names, her first of which was Marie Monin, but she became Marie of Lyon to the resistance, and the Free French knew her as Germaine. While in France, she became a regular visitor to the American consulate, and cultivated relationships with a motley variety of people from a gynecologist, a factory owner, nuns, prostitutes, a brothel keeper, as well as an important individuals of all persuasions, including police chiefs, 
who turned a blind and sometimes benevolent eye to her many activities. But when the US entered the war in mid-December of 1941, she found that she needed to be more careful. She was aware of the mounting issues of another agent, Pierre de Roncourt, and he was arrested in April of 1942 through the capture of one of his couriers who had gone between Pierre and Virginia to pass messages. In November of 1942, she was tipped off that the Germans were making Filion, as she hurriedly decamped with three other escapees, and she successfully surmounted the Pyrenees on foot in the depths of winter in about 48 hours. However, bad luck saw the party arrested at the border of a neutral Spain because she didn't have an entrance stamp in her passport. She was imprisoned in the Miranda del Ebro camp, from which she was extradited by the American consul to Barcelona. Now, this is an amazing feat for an able-bodied person, but add to this, Virginia had a prosthetic leg, and a prosthetics historian was asked about Cuthbert, and that was what she named her leg, and they said that one of the problems was the way that it attached to her with leather straps. I mean, while it might be okay if you were just walking a short distance in mild weather, but when it's really hot and you're climbing up or down steps, the leather would chafe your skin until it was raw to the stump and the blister would then bleed. It would have also been really difficult going down steps because the ankle didn't work in the way that our ankles do. And it would have been quite difficult to lock. So she would always feel really vulnerable to falling forward. Following her arrest in January of 1943, she was back in London and ready to head back to France. But SOE didn't use her again until May, when they sent her to Madrid, seemingly as a correspondent for the Chicago Times, but really to gain information on escape routes, and was back in Britain by November. She didn't really enjoy this mission and found it really boring in comparison to her time in France. And furthermore, when she came back, SOE believed that she was too well known now to go back to France. So Virginia had two aims. First, was to learn to be her own wireless operator. And the second was to be transferred to the Office of Strategic Services or OSS, which was the US's version of SOE. While SOE were now worried that she was recognizable, this didn't seem to worry OSS. In fact, to try and hide herself, she got a makeup artist to teach her how to draw wrinkles on her face. And she also found a dentist to grind down her teeth so that she looked like a French milkmaid. And on the 21st of March, 1944, she landed via British torpedo boat on the coast of Brittany under the codename Diane. She was established to an OSS network called Saint, along with another OSS officer, who Virginia came to distrust and she tried to shake him off as soon as she could. She made her way to the rural area of, of central France, where she organized drop zones, storage sites, safe houses, and kept in regular contact with London. OSS transmissions at the time were going through SOE lines and all the while she was constantly trying to avoid the Gestapo. After D-Day she was directed to move to the Huit Loray in the massive central. Here she found her new Marquise hostile to her leadership but regardless plans still went ahead. In mid-August the invasion of southern France happened and a three-man Jedburgh team which I'll talk about later arrived to help her. Virginia's task was now to report on German troop movements, such as the relocation of German general staff from Lyon to Le Pou. September 1944, she left for liberated Paris, more than likely happy to rid herself of the ever 
growing and warming rockies. Here, she and another OSS agent, Paul Garlock, who she married in 1957, were told to they were to head a new team to form resistance in Austria. But with the rapid collapse of Germany, this mission was aborted and instead the pair returned to Paris in April of 1945 and soon after she, she resigned from the OSS. Now, at the end of the war, she joined the newly formed CIA, which superseded the OSS, and she worked there for 15 years, mostly at their headquarters. These were not her happiest days, as she thrived on the adrenaline of acting independently in the field during wartime, and now her job saw her largely confined to a desk. Not only this, but she faced discrimination in the workplace as a woman. She retired in 1966, never speaking publicly about her time in SOE, and she died in 1982 in Maryland. Now, while we know quite a lot about Virginia, her story is still largely confined to the intelligence community. In fact, her story is on display at the CIA Museum inside spy agency headquarters, but this is actually off limits to the public. Following the war, the British and French both recognised her contributions in private and US President Harry Truman wanted to honour her in a public White House ceremony, but she declined saying she wanted to remain undercover. The OSS chief, William Donovan, gave Virginia the Distinguished Service Cross, making her the only civilian woman to receive one in the Second World War. And Virginia's mother was the only outsider present at the ceremony. While she may not have publicly been recognised, her work was recognised in other ways. So Operation Jawbreaker, which was the covert mission to attack Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, drew on processes that Virginia had pioneered in the way of how do you set up networks in foreign countries, how do you bring in locals, and perhaps then prepare them for some big military event later on. In fact, people involved in the CIA have said that she's still mentioned in their lectures and training there today, and they even named one of their training buildings after her. I mean, that is just remarkable. The fact she did all of that with a prosthetic leg. Yeah, and not even a good prosthetic leg. The fact that That's she named it Cuthbert. <laughs> yeah. It's a good name. It's I mean, why not? She was another woman that wasn't going to be told no. Definitely. And you can see why being behind a desk bored her after, yeah. after everything else. Crossing the Pyrenees in 48 hours to then have to sit behind a desk for 15 years. And you just know somebody would have mansplained something to her. Oh, 100%. Like, I admire her restraint in not taking Cuthbert off and beating them to death. <laughs> Do you think that was written in her contract? You must not use yeah. an aesthetic leg. To beat somebody to death. She called into her, like, supervisor's office. Like, I understand that what they said was mansplaining. <laughs> but you just can't go around beating people with a prosthetic leg. <laughs> not again. It's only Tuesday. Day since last beating with Cuthbert. <laughs> Put it back to zero. The thing about these women is, isn't it remarkable that she's like, oh, I don't want medals or public recognition. I just want to do the job. Yeah. There was none of this glory seeking. It was just, this is wrong. I'm going to do the right thing. Let's get on with it. Yeah. Just, just remarkable, really. So who is the second woman you're going to? Next up is the woman that the Germans dubbed the White Mouse for her knack at slipping through the Gestapo's fingers. So Nancy Wake once told an interviewer, quote, 
I don't see why we women should just wave our men a proud goodbye and then knit them balaclavas. Nancy was born on August 30th, 1912 in Wellington, New Zealand, as the youngest of six children. But as a child, her family soon moved to Australia. At 16, she left home and worked briefly as a nurse in a mental hospital. With the help of a small inheritance from her aunt, Nancy left Australia at the age of 20, where she travelled to London, New York and Paris, and she found work as a freelance journalist for the Chicago Tribune while in France and began to live, quote, Parisian nightlife to the full. So how did she fall into working with the SOE? Well, it all began, she said, with a visit to Vienna in 1934, just after Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. There she saw roving Nazi gangs randomly beating Jewish men and women in the streets. Then later she also witnessed the attacks on Jewish shops when she was in Berlin to interview Hitler for her work. Those attacks made her promise herself that if she ever had the opportunity, she would do everything she could to stop the Nazi movement. She said, quote, my hatred of the Nazis was very, very deep. In 1939, she married Henry Fukura, heir to a Marseille shipping concern, and with German invasion in France, Nancy's wealth and social standing gave her a certain cover as she began helping mem members of the local resistance. But I wanted to make a note here of the relationship between husband and wife. He was 14 years her senior when she met him at the par party and his partner on that occasion was a really beautiful young woman and this seemed to be a trend for Henry and finally totally exasperated with the parade of women, Nancy asked him, how do you get so many beautiful girls? And his response was, they ring me up. They ring you up. Yes, he sighed. Every girl except the one I want rings me up. And Nancy's response was, if you want to speak to me on the phone, you will ring me up. And I think that's just perfect. Now, after the Germans rolled into France in January of 1940, she became an ambulance driver. And she demanded that her husband pay for both an ambulance and to teach her how to drive. So that she, basically she wouldn't be left at home while he was off fighting a war. Paris fell in June and this then sparked her resolve to be involved in the resistance, including an escape line from her home in Marseille. She began with hoarding food goods in her home and it wasn't an act of selfishness. She was lucky to be well off and she had a knack at making friends. So she ended up with so many friends that she ended up cooking for them all or sending food parcels to them. In fact, she became a regular at the black market. And while she had a good command of the French language, each evening she'd go home to her husband and repeat the words that she'd heard at the market. And Henry would then have to translate them. And they were some of the worst language that was heard in Marseille at the time. So he was quite embarrassed quite a lot of the time translating it to her. It was with this newfound language that she was ready to deal with any situation. And funnily enough, it was also something that would serve her well in her SOE days. Nancy then moved on from black market stockpiling to hiding people on the run. She paid exorbitant, exorbitant bribes to prison guards to free those captured by local authorities and became a dependable courier for the resistance. As an escort for Allied soldiers and refugees trying to leave the country, it drew her into what was known as the Pat Line, which involved guiding British aircrew and lost soldiers after Dunkirk, as well as Jews and other escapees out of France. 
within a few years in 1943, occupation authorities became aware of her activities. And so she was forced to flee France via her own escape line. And her husband stayed behind in order to cover for her, but he was later arrested and executed. She didn't find out what happened to her husband until after the war, and she was said to be totally heartbroken when she found out. Now, via her escape route, she found her way to England and she was accepted for training by the SOE. She was known to push the limits and she even broke into the SOE files using the methods that she'd been taught in training. And for this, she was dismissed, only to be brought back a few days later. On April 30th, 1944, when she was 31, she was among 39 women and 430 men who were parachuted into France to help with preparations for D-Day. Now, she was to act as a courier and codenamed Helene, and her cover name at the time was Madame André Joubert. Unfortunately, lacking the information that they needed for their wireless team member who'd been delayed, she and a male SOE agent were arrested on their landing. But somehow she bluffed her way into her French resistance target headquarters. And when they found the total disorganisation of it, her quick thinking forced the hand of the resistance and she was then sent to where she needed to be and communication links in Britain formed. She helped establish communication lines between the British military and the French resistance in 1944 that were deemed crucial in weakening German strength in France and to advance the Allied invasion. With her highly motivated force, Nancy planned and executed a successful raid on, the, on a Gestapo garrison and an arms factory in central France in 1944. Along with this, she collected night parachute drops of weapons and ammunition and hid them in storage caches for the advancing Allied armies and generally just harassed the enemy. When a German counterattacked against her Marquise disrupted lines of communication, Nancy covered 200 kilometers by bike over hostile ground to get and receive crucial messages. She slept in haystacks or in the open during her 72-hour journey, which resulted in the re-establishing of radio contact with London. As you can imagine, the nature of her work made her cautious. When three French women came to her attention for possibly being spies, she was forced to order interrogations on them. She became satisfied that two of the women were telling the truth, but then she sentenced a third to death by firing squad. And when talking about the incident, she said, I was not a very nice person and it didn't put me off my breakfast. After all, she had an easy death. She didn't suffer. And I knew her death was a lot better than the one I would have got. A French Marquise leader said, quote, she's the most feminine woman I know until the fighting began. And then she's like five men. And according to her obituary in the Washington Post, quote, she chopped on cigars and bested guerrilla fighters in drinking bouts. She travelled nowhere without her Chanel lipstick, face cream and a favourite red satin cushion. Following the war, she was given the George Medal from the UK and the Medal of Freedom from America and France gave her the Legion d'Honneur. By most accounts, Nancy never really figured out what to do with her life after the war. She tried to find a job that suited her energies, but she ran unsuccessfully for political office in Australia, returned to England to do intelligent work and she married a retired Royal Air Force pilot uh, by the name of John Forward in 1957, and he died in 1997. In the years before her death, she lived in a nursing home for retired veterans, spending much of the day clutching a gin and tonic at a nearby hotel bar, the same watering hole where she'd had her first, quote, bloody good drink after the war. Nancy died in 2011.
I bet she would have been great to go for a drink or two with. 100%. She definitely didn't shy away from the fact that she had to do awful things in order to do her job. She wasn't wrong about, you know, firing squad being a lot better than, no, not just her, but her network and however many others would have faced. Yeah, it was a them or us situation. It still must have been difficult to live with. Maybe not straight away, but yeah. afterwards. Maybe that even factored into the fact that she couldn't really settle after the war. Yeah, it must have been really hard. Especially because we said in the last podcast, you know, so many women just went back to their day-to-day lives when they ended whatever they were doing during the war. She's an example of someone that couldn't quite settle. And I mean... It must have been difficult to go back to just, you know, you think what women could do then. I know things were improving, Mm -hmm. but not a huge deal. Yeah. I imagine as well, she'd been doing all this work thinking that when it was over, she'd go back to her husband. But then to find out at the end of all of that, that her husband had been executed for helping her escape. Hmm. Must have been really hard. I mean, that's a lot of a lot to hold on the soul, isn't it? You know, yeah. she must have felt at least partly responsible, or we, we can we can imagine that she would have felt partly responsible for his death. Yeah. You know, she'd had to deal with sending a woman to the firing squad and the other untold horrors of war. No wonder she couldn't settle. Yeah. And by all accounts, her her first husband, their relationship was based on this. They had real love for each other. It wasn't a convenient marriage. She was so worried that her husband was going off to war. You know, she demanded that he buy her an ambulance so that she could go be there with him. And the stories of her in the ambulance are great um, because she wasn't used to driving on the side of the road that the French drove on. So, you know, she just used to accidentally veer to the wrong side of the road (laughs) and absolutely terrified her instructor. And then when they were being told to like leave the front lines because, you know, France were losing, um, she just ignored them and carried on doing what she was doing, you know, getting anyone that was injured into the ambulance and out of the way. She just was going to do it whether they wanted her to or not. I also love that she was um, dismissed for using the skills they taught her to read her training. And then they were like, actually, no, 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 bring her back. I mean, what better way of practice? You can't be mad at someone I mean, I was trained to do that when they then go and use those skills. Especially if they've used them in the midst of like secret agent training headquarters and got away while she obviously didn't get away with it. But yeah. having the nerve to do that. I can just imagine her sitting in the chair just reading her file when they walk in like, hello, yes, yeah. I have got this oh, file. <laughs> what, 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 what was this remark? When you say this, what do you mean? <laughs> While well, she's like just cleaning a gun. So who is the last of these ladies on your list? The last uh, on my list is Pearl Witherington Cornoli. She was born on the 24th of June, 1914 in Paris as the eldest child to English parents. She didn't have an easy childhood and she later credited her difficult childhood as being the reason for her success managing the Marquis Network. The father was rarely seen by the family and she described her mother as ineffectual, which meant that she was the one having to provide for her family. 
With only four years of schooling under her belt, she became a typist at the Paris British Embassy and was engaged to Henry Cornoli before he joined the army at the outbreak of the war. By 1940, German forces occupied France and fleeing the occupation, Pearl led her mother and two sisters across Europe to Britain. She and her family had kept a low profile in the newly occupied capital, but in December of 1940, they were warned that British nationals were being rounded up. Four days later, they left for Marseille, lacking the necessary paperwork. Pearl smuggled herself, her mother and sisters across the frontier to, into southern unoccupied France, and then got an American consul to arrange their visas to Spain and Portugal. When they arrived in Britain, Pearl sisters joined the WAF. Yes, I have made a link to the WAF and you can't stop me. While Pearl herself worked for the Air Ministry, where she had a fateful meeting with an old school friend from Paris, Maurice Southgate. She and Maurice were both sickened to see their home city in the hands of the Germans and felt determined to do more than just sit behind a desk. When Maurice joined SOE in 1942, she had wanted to follow him, but her boss was opposed to her being mixed up in a cloak and dagger work and did everything to prevent her transfer. Nothing would stand in her way, though. And in April of 1943, a friend at the Foreign Office arranged an interview with SOE's F section. And in 1943, she joined SOE training as a courier. Her photographic memory and her steadfast calm helped during her training. Though she would never carry a gun during her mission, she didn't believe it was a woman's job to kill, but one of her instructors commented that she was, quote, probably the best shot, male or female, we have had yet, and judged her completely brave and an excellent student for the job. On September the 23rd, 1943, she parachuted into France, and the next day she was reunited with Henry, who, by all accounts, had escaped a prisoner of war camp. FEMA agents weren't trained to run networks, and Pearl's poor Morse code skills had ruled her out as a wireless operator. So plans were made to send Pearl, codenamed Marie, as an assistant for Southgate, who had parachuted back into France eight months earlier. His network was known as Stationer, and it spread across much of central and southwestern France, a territory too vast for his existing courier, Jacqueline Nern, to handle by herself. So, travelling under the false identity of Genevieve Toussaint, with microphotographed orders for Southgate sewn into the hem of her skirt, she was dropped to his reception committee on the night of the 22nd or 23rd of September 1943, in a field near Tendu, southwest of Chateaurua. Despite high winds, Pearl managed to avoid landing in a lake, but her luggage was not so lucky. Pearl's cover identity was Marie-Jeanine Martha Vauges, who had been a real woman who just completely disappeared, and she was giving the cover job as a cosmetic saleswoman. Not that she herself ever wore makeup. Unable to find a safe place to set up, Pearl ended up sleeping in the heated train carriages as she moved from place to place, avoiding the Gestapo. In fact, wanted posters were put up for her, offering one million francs as a reward. After consultations in London, Southgate once again parachuted back to France in January of 1944 with orders to concentrate on building a secret army to hold up German forces when D-Day would arrive. At this time, Pearl was out of action for several weeks with neurologic rheumatism, which was a consequence of her cold nights on trains. But less than a week after Southgate's arrival, the stationer network suddenly collapsed. Although he'd begun to delegate some of his duties, 
But Southgate was hopelessly overwhelmed by his workload. On the 1st of May, he missed a warning signal and walks into a Gestapo trap. Pearl quickly spread the news of his arrest to those who were most in danger. And for the sake of security, the network was split up. Changing her co-name to Pauline, London agreed that Pearl should become the leader of a new network, Wrestler, taking over Stationer's former territory. Wrestler would have been a tough assignment for a trained organiser, let alone a courier like Pearl. Resistance in this rural area of France was weak and fragmented. A local Gaullist leader had been captured soon after her arrival, and although a rival communist group had happily taken Southgate's supplies of arms, they refused to follow any orders from London. On D-Day, Pearl's poorly equipped Mokris did what they could, cutting phone lines and felling trees to block roads and rail lines, but their minor sabotage brought unexpected fierce retaliation by the Germans, who attacked their base of operations in Valencay on June 11th, 1944. The Germans, thinking that they would find a large group hiding in the woods, sent three garrisons, which is about 2,000 men, to attack them. The information was incorrect, as Pearl only had a small number of men with her. On hearing the news, she quickly collected her things and cycled to the outhouse where their weapons were stored until she was warned of the fast advancing soldiers and she dropped everything and took refuge in a cornfield. Slowly, she crawled through the field, but when the wind blew, it exposed her position and the Germans took shots at her from time to time. She eventually made her way to a farm nearby. The Germans themselves were unprepared for guerrilla tactics and a combined local Marquis force of just 120 men were able to fend them off for 14 hours, killing 86 and wounding many more. The German forces retreated, but the next day the Gestapo returned to burn down the chateau and blew up wrestlers' arm dumps there. Starting from scratch with very little money and no arms, Pearl and her followers regrouped a farm a few miles away. Feeling out of her depth, she requested a military commander to be sent from London, but it very quickly became obvious that no one was coming and she was going to have to do it alone. Towards the end of August, her Marquise was ordered to move to Gatine's Forest near Valencay. Pearl knew that the men were effective in guerrilla warfare in their local area, but they'd be handicapped in unfamiliar terrain, but they had to go, they didn't have a choice. Despite this, in mid-September, Wrestler finally helped to force the surrender to the Americans of the remaining 18,000 troops in the region, having inflicted around 1,000 German casualties over the previous four months. Having now completed her mission, the newly promoted flight officer Witherington returned to London. In addition to her mission report, she also gave an extraordinarily and possibly unique breakdown of her expenditure in the field, amounting to several million francs, it listed in meticulous detail every purchase she'd made, even including entrance for cigarettes and razor blades. And on the 26th of October, she and Henry were finally married on their return to London. While the French made her a Knight of the Legion of Honour and awarded her the Croc de Guerre and the Medal of the Resistance, British recognition of her bravery became a more bureaucratic affair. Female agents were considered ineligible for military decorations and Buckmaster's recommendation for a military cross was rejected, as was his suggested alternative of a military OBE. When offered a consolatory civil MBE, Pearl turned it down as a matter of principle. She'd done the same job as her more highly decorated male colleagues as eligible British officers such as Southgate, who received the Distinguished Service Order, 
and there'd clearly been nothing civil about her role as a guerrilla leader. Her view was shared by F-section staff and an appeal led to a victory of sorts. In September of 1946, military MBEs were awarded to her and four other female agents. After reuniting with former comrades in France and taking part in a US publicity tour, giving talks about her life as a secret agent, Pearl returned to Paris where she began a long career at the World Bank. Husband Henry worked as a pharmaceutical chemist, and in 1991, they both helped to establish a memorial commemorating the 104 F-section agents who did not return. And later, she retired just a few miles away in old wrestler territory. Following Henry's death in 1999, Pearl also became an honorary president of the Fédération Nationale Libre Résistance an association set up after the war to remember the work of F-section agents and staff. In 2004, Pearl's MBE was upgraded to a CBE. Then at the age of 92, the RAF finally awarded her her most prized possession, her parachute wings. They'd been withheld on a technicality. Wings were given to agents after five parachute jumps and her fourth had been into France. Pearl died in February of 2008. I love her story. She was just like, here's an itemised list of everything I have spent. Because while I was on the run from the Gestapo and being shot at, I thought accounts were important. Also the fact that she ended up having to lead a group. She didn't have the more skills that she needed. She had no experience of leading a group. She was just meant to be a courier. She wasn't sent out there to be anything other than a courier. Again, she just rose to the challenge. She got on with the job. Yeah. Okay, no, nobody's coming to save us, so this is what we're going to do. And it also shows how unorganised a lot of SOE was at that point. Like she requested that she needed help, and no one sent anyone to help her. As the war got more chaotic, people were scrambling. And the SOE was so cloak and dagger mm-hmm. that it didn't reach out to other departments. Yeah. It was, like a, it was another issue. And they were very underfunded as well, which was another issue. And some people didn't approve of their tactics. Like some higher ups were like, yeah, this isn't, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what they thought they should do to defeat the Nazis, but they didn't think it should be SOE guerrilla tactics. No. The hard work of all the SOE agents paved the way for something called Operation Jedburgh. The purpose of this operation was to coordinate French resistance actions with the Allied strategic and tactical plans of the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force in order to slow down German forces during the Normandy landings. This was done by airdropping equipment to personnel belonging to the SOE, the OSS, and the Free France Central Bureau of Intelligence and Action, which was the BCRA, as well as local French resistance networks. The Jedburgh Command was established at the beginning of 1944 at the Special Forces Headquarters in Baker Street in London. And Colonel Wilkinson of the SOE gave the code name Jedberg, what became small three-man teams. They were trained to work alone um, deep in enemy territory. And Jedberg comes from the name of a town located on the Scottish, Scottish border, near which many exercises were organised. Like The first Jedberg operation was carried out on the night of June 4th to the 5th as part of Operation Operation Overlord, which was D-Day. The British experts in commando operations initiated the project in in autumn of 1943 and began the selection of hand-picked 
members of SAS with excellent physical condition, these volunteers had to be determined and able to endure multiple tests while perfecting technical skills. Now, as we've just mentioned, by this period of the war, SRE had insufficient resources to mount this operation by themselves. They only had access to 23 Handley Page Halifax aircraft for dropping agents and stores, and that was barely sufficient to maintain their existing networks. OSS was able to augment this force with consolidated B-24 Liberator aircraft operating from RAF Harrington. If you want to know about that, you can see Operation Carpetbagger. Additionally, the US OSS eagerly sought to be involved, since in a single swoop, it got more agents into Northwestern Europe than it had during the entire previous period of the US involvement in the war. General Eisenhower, the American Supreme Commander, ensured that the French would leave the operation and gave them command on the 9th of June of the Jedburgh teams. The first team in to France was codenamed Hugh, and they parachuted into central France near Chateauroux the night before the Allied landings in Normandy. In total, 93 Jedburgh teams operated in 54 French metropolitan departments between June and December of 1944. Now, in late 1944, after all this has kind of happened, it became clear that the war was going to really soon be over. And Lord Selburne advocated for keeping the SOE on or having a sim similar body that would report to the Ministry of Defence in operation. But Anthony Eden, who was the Foreign Secretary, insisted that his ministry was already responsible for the Special Intelligence Service, or SIS, and they should therefore control SOE or its successor. Now, in 1945, after Churchill's election defeat, SOE lost its biggest supporter. It also faced renewed operation from SIS and others in Whitehall who wanted control of British intelligence services and operations. In January of 1946, SOE was finally dissolved and SIS absorbed much of its training and research staff. Now, for some of SOE's senior staff, they moved very easily into financial services in the city of London, but some of them hadn't lost their undercover mentality. Most of SOE's other personnel reverted to their peacetime occupations or regular service in the armed forces, but 280 of them were taken onto the special operations branch of MI6. Some of these had served as agents in the field, but MI6 was most interested in SOE's training and research staff. So Stuart Menzies, the head of MI6, who was generally known as C, soon decided that a separate special operations branch was unsound and merged it into the general body of MI6. While the Whitehall's establishment was content to bury SOE after it had been closed down in 1946, MI6 wanted to snuff out their wartime rival and the Foreign Office also wanted to see an end to the attacks aimed their way after the war. But there was at least one formidable woman who had been looked over by MI6 and refused to let the heroism of her girls slip into the unknown and this was Vera Atkins. She carried all the information she would ever need to know in her head and at the end of the war she and Buckmaster who was the last head of SOE 
worked as a duo in the post-war years to publicise the work of the agents. Odette Sanson, another agent, also made her way into the world of media, and her story too was splashed across the newspapers and big screen. The official memorial to those who served in the SRE during the Second World War was unveiled on the 13th of February 1996 on the wall of the West Cloister of Westminster Abbey by Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. A further memorial to SOE agents was unveiled in October 2009 on the Albert Embankment by Lambeth Palace in London. And the Valencia SOE Memorial honours 104 SOE agents who lost their lives while working in France. It feels like, had it not been for Vera Atkins, how much we would have lost? Yeah. Obviously, it wasn't seen as like the done thing to send people in like that. So after the war, the Foreign Office really didn't want anyone talking about it because it looked bad on them. And then, you know, MI6 just wanted to absorb everyone so that they were the only special intelligence people. It's a shame they weren't celebrated straight away. Like, I, I kind of understand wanting to not jump up and down and shout all of your tactics. But also the bravery they showed and how much they impacted the, the, the way the war ended should be remembered. So we hope you've enjoyed this in-depth look at the SOE. We will, in all honesty, likely come back to it again at some point because there are still stories to be told and we're all about celebrating women whose stories need to be told. But until then, take care of yourselves and each other.